All right, welcome to Equipping Hour. If you don't yet have your donut and your class notes, uh, you'll need to get those. They're in the back together. And the class notes this week are identical to what you saw last week. We're going to continue where we left off. So if you brought yours from last week, that's great. You saved a few trees. And uh, you can bring your class notes with you again next week. Um, and that'll uh, save a few more trees, I suppose. All right, I want to start our time today with a word of prayer, and then um, we'll dive in. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to see truth, truths about you, truths about ourselves. God, we pray that we would reflect your own heartbeat um, towards sin, and we, we do so as sinners forgiven, purchased by grace. God, we pray that we would be humbled by these truths. We pray that we would be ever more dependent upon you uh, as we reflect on um, this study of what sin is. And may we again just appreciate what it means to have been saved from the tyranny of sin, from slavery to sin, from the consequences of our sin, and one day to be totally and fully removed from the very presence of it. God, we look forward to that day. Uh, give us eager anticipation for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you remember from last week, um, we began our discussion with thinking through David's words in Psalm 51.4 where he says, against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. And, and we cataloged the, the humans that David had actually sinned against. And how striking it is that David would say, I've only sinned against God. Uh, when in reality what David is expressing is the infinite nature of the offense of sin against God uh, over and against when we sin against each other. It's not that David didn't sin against Bathsheba or against Uriah or against the baby or against the nation or even against us by way of example. Um, but it is truly that uh, we have sin out of proportion when we view our grievances against each other as monumental, when the real cataclysmic infinite offense is against a holy God who's perfect. And so we just need to see sin rightly. Um, if you weren't here last week, don't worry. Uh, you've been studying sin your whole life. And uh, there is an academic study of sin and an experiential one. And... Um, Coming to grips with grace really highlights what sin is in significant ways. It's almost like, wow, I, did, I didn't know what sin was until I was introduced to grace. Um, and then the, I began to see the depths of heart attitudes against God. Uh, you know, before you're in Christ, maybe you think of, about the big dastardly deeds, you know, Adolf Hitler. Um, or, you know, if you were in, in, in junior, junior high school, certain select words that guys would say in the locker room or whatever, um, those are the big awful deeds I would never do. And then you find yourself with the most awful corruptions at the heart level. You get rescued by God's grace and you begin to see God dismantling these things from the inside. And you realize that those big outward crimes... <laughs> pale in comparison with the apprehension of the motives that rule in my heart, even in just in terms of residual depravity. 
So part of the battle in the Christian life is undoing those false definitions of sin and replacing them with biblical de- definitions of sin. So last week, we just sort of walked through the Greek, Greek and Hebrew dictionaries and walked through the, the kaleidoscope of terminology by which God defines and describes our sins. Missing the mark, crossing the line, uh, willful transgression and rebellion against him, omission of things we should do, committing of deeds we shouldn't do, and all of those things. I want to begin our time today just by uh, opening up the floor to any questions you had from last week. I didn't get any text or email submissions, but uh, if you had any questions or thoughts before we move on to where did sin come from, um, we can do that first. I wasn't prepared for questions. I didn't know there would be a test. All right. Well, if there are none, and by the way, you can raise your hand at any point and and ask questions. Um, Page 13, page 13, we're continuing our study of hamartiology, right? Hamartano is the Greek verb, I sin. Hamartiology is the study of sin. An important question that comes up is, where did sin come from? Has sin always been around? Has there always been evil? Is there sort of a yin-yang in the universe, a dark side of the force and a bright side of the force, and they combat each other in a perpetual battle? Uh, The answer to that is no. Uh, That would be New Age, that would be uh, Eastern mysticism, and uh, that is not the truth of Scripture. Um, In eternity past, in the beginning, was God. No evil, no sin. In a very real sense, sin had an origin. So what is sin's origin? Where did it come from? Why did it enter? Uh, These are some of the questions addressed by a theological term called theodicy. If you ever see that word theodicy, uh, that is sort of the philosophical attempt to answer the question, whence evil? Right? Where, Where did evil come from? Uh, Where did it start? Uh, Why did it start? Uh, Can you explain why there supposedly is a good, all-powerful God in the universe and there is also evil? Have you heard these arguments? I mean, if God exists and God is good and God is powerful, then evil should not exist. Because if God exists and he's good and evil exists, then he must not be powerful enough to eradicate it. Or if God exists and he's powerful, he must not be good because evil exists and he's not good enough to eradicate it. I don't know if you've heard these questions and conundrums. It's such a silly syllogism, right? It it sort of makes logical sense if you follow the argument and walk through it. But it's fatally flawed at the beginning. It assumes that God would have no purpose for such things in his universe, God exists, God is infinitely powerful, God is infinitely, inexhaustibly good, and he has purpose for something like evil in the world. So that's really what we want to address in our time today. Framed in the language of the skeptic, the problem of evil uh, is just this conundrum that cannot be answered. But framed from the perspective of a biblical worldview, the Bible's not troubled by this at all. The Bible absolutely affirms the goodness of God, the existence of God, the power of God, and the presence of sin and evil. This doesn't trouble the philosophical mind of Scripture. By the way, Scripture is the only consistent worldview you will find anywhere. Pick any other worldview, 
pick, a, pick an imaginary universe, pick the world of Hollywood that creates a storyline with its own worldview encapsulated. Uh, the Star Wars universe, by the way, is not consistent. It falls apart, right? Any other type of worldview you could imagine, any other false religion, any Eastern ideas, the idea of circularity rather than linear history, all of that stuff falls apart. Only the biblical worldview stands unassailable as absolutely true at every point. Consistent with itself, consistent with reality. Why? Because history is indeed God's story. And the Bible is indeed God's word. The God who cannot lie is the God of all history, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And he is the one who has given us his word. So whatever the Bible has to say about the origins of sin and evil or the presence of sin and evil are absolutely certain because they come from the mind and heart of God who has chosen to disclose reality and truth to us, his creatures, in the world that actually exists. So let's just frame our conversation with a few initial thoughts. First of all, we should not think of evil as some substance or some entity in and of itself, like a a black ooze or some goop somewhere that you sort of step on it like the Lebrean tar pits and you get it on the bottom of your foot, then it soaks in and it infects you and then it goes to other people. It's not something. Evil is not a thing. It's not a substance. It's not a power. Evil is merely a descriptor. Uh, If you remember Dr. George Zemeck's definition of sin, is any personal lack of conformity to the moral character or desire of God. So, creatures are substantial. Creatures have substance. Evil is not a substance. It's not even a metaphysical, transphysical substance of some sort. It's none of those things. Moral creatures are real, actual beings, and when they transgress God's moral character, that's evil, that's sin. Does that make sense? Evil is just a descriptor of the activities of moral agents, of beings that do something that doesn't please God. Another thing to think about is that God has created moral agents with the capacity for decisions, God has created moral agents with the capacity for decisions. Um, Let's think about some moral agents that fall in that category. Uh, Does granite fall in the category of a moral agent able to make decisions? No. Um, What about broccoli? Okay, no, disgusting. I love, well, it's so good. Have you ever roasted broccoli on broil in the oven with like soy sauce and sesame seeds? It's, with what? with mayonnaise on it. Actually, evil is a substance. It's called mayonnaise. You know me too well. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, uh, is broccoli a moral agent able to make decisions? Uh, no, and it, 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 we consider it life, like botanical life. Uh, If you think about our our modern scientific nomenclature, uh, it's one of the classifications of things that are alive, plant life. Um, It's interesting in in the the biblical order of of, uh, life, uh, the Bible thinks of life as that which is animated life, that which has breath in it. So it doesn't call broccoli life, it does call a cow life and people have life. 
Um, so it is interesting, though, that in, this, in the study of broccoli, uh, they discovered a, a sort of what they call a primitive central nervous system that responds to external stimuli. So broccoli feels pain and grows away from pain on the stalk, which is interesting if you are a vegetarian on moral grounds. <laughs> right? You've stopped eating beef and you've started eating broccoli because you don't want beef to feel pain, but the broccoli... And, would a cow be considered a moral agent able to make decisions pro or against the moral standards of God's law? No. No. Has animated life, but it's not a moral agent. Okay? Um, what other categories of creatures can we think about? Of course, human beings, right? Um, we're, we're not... I know the, the, the world calls us mammals at the end of an evolutionary chain of organisms in greater and greater progression. We are fundamentally different than all the creatures that walk the earth, right? Made in the very image of God, um, created not from primates in a, in, a, in a progressive succession of development and alteration, but Adam created from the dirt of the ground. His very name, Adam, Edama in Hebrew means dirt. You're dirt. <laughs> from the dirt you came, from the dirt you'll go back. And Eve created from Adam, the mother of all the living. So humans are fundamentally different than the rest of the animal life, plant life, those kinds of things. And, and man is created as a moral agent. One of the fundamental constituent parts of man is his ability to make moral choices. That is something God has programmed into the very heart of man, and it reflects something in God, uh, an ability to discern between that which is good and evil and the ability to act on that which is good and evil. Even before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was prohibited, they were moral agents capable of making a moral choice for or against God's revealed will. They chose against. And what Adam and Eve did by choice, we now do by nature because we've inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve, um, from our parents. By the way, you can, kids, you can blame your parents for your sin nature, right? Not the activities, <laughs> but you can blame your parents for their sin. And they would blame their parents and their parents and their parents, all the way back through Noah, all the way back to Adam and Eve. But God has created moral agents. What's another category of a moral agent able to make discernment and decisions on choices for and against God? Okay, angelic beings. And we might have a big category called the heavenly beings. Whether or not they're all angels, right? You've got seraphim, the fiery ones. You've got cherubim. Uh, the eem ending is the plural, right? So cherubims or cherubim, uh, cherubs and, and seraphs, seraphim. You have the four living creatures described in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1. They show up again in the book of Revelation. Um, I believe those four living creatures are the seraphim. Uh, they are the fiery ones before the Lord. Um, they may or may not be angels, uh, but they are moral creatures. You do, in fact, have angels that evidence the fact that angelic or heavenly beings are moral beings with a capacity for moral choices for and against the revealed will of God. Uh, how do we know that? How do we know angels have that capacity? 
because Satan is an angel by category. And the demons are angelic beings by category. They just happen to be ones who sinned, sinned. And, and unlike humans today, angels don't sin by sin nature. They sinned from the platform of, a, it's not natural to me to sin, but I am a moral being with the ability to make a moral choice and chose against God. By the way, angels who sinned and are fallen angels or demons will never know what it's like to be forgiven. What a staggering reality that is. What did God do with Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden? Killed an animal, spilled blood, should have been their blood, killed an animal and clothed them and covered their shame. God did no such things with angels that fell. By the way, angels that didn't fall will never know what it's like to be forgiven, to be redeemed. I'm convinced that angels really understand glory. They don't understand grace. I think on this side of things, you and I understand grace experientially. I don't know that we get glory yet. I don't think we feel about sin the way we one day will feel about sin. By the way, just uh, turn your Bible to Revelation Chapter 19, this is sort of a a comfort to my heart in thinking about how I will feel about sin one day. Listen, I want to bring my affections, I want to bring my loves and hates in alignment with the glory of God. I I want to do that. I also live in, in a mixed condition personally where I sin still. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And I am to have compassion on sinners and not to think more highly of myself than I ought. And I ought to say with John Bradford when he saw a drunkard on the side of the road, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford, right? I want to be winsome in my forgiveness to those who have not yet been rescued and appeal to them. 2 Corinthians 5, as an ambassador for Christ, be reconciled. Not, hey, I got forgiven, all you chumps. But look at the forgiveness I have. Come to Christ. Right? Even Jesus in the incarnation wept over Jerusalem. He, he looked at the young rich ruler who walked away from the gospel in his presence and had a sorrow for him because it, is, it said that Jesus loved him. Listen, I, I, I don't want to have a superior mindset because I've been forgiven. I want to have a lowly mindset of one who's been forgiven and wants to show others where the forgiveness is. But that's not the end of the story. There is a day coming when redeemed saints will understand glory in a way that reflavors our attitude towards sin. Look at Revelation 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his slaves on her. 
And a second time they said, Hallelujah, for her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the one who is sovereign over all things, he reigns. He kings. He sovereigns. He wins. And what do you have in heaven there but the the combined throng of the choruses of heaven, not only angelic beings who have never sinned, but the redeemed of all time who are forgiven of their sins, praising God for his judgment against sinners. Think about that, Babylon, the the, the great harlot of revelation, that anti-God world system that comprises the, the perpetrators and the victims of the sinful rebellion against God on a global scale being judged for their sins. The postman, the piano teacher, the people you went to school with. I don't believe that Revelation 19 is the song I sing right now. I believe the song that I sing right now is be reconciled to Christ while you're still breathing. But it is a comfort to my heart to know the God who has promised he would wipe away every tear will not have me grieving over those under destruction on that side of eternity. If you want a fuller treatment of that, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon Uh, with the title, something along the lines of, Why Won't I Cry Over the Eternal Destruction of My Mother Who Never Repented? Okay, that's a paraphrase of the title of a sermon, but he devoted an entire sermon to that topic. If there are no tears in heaven, won't I weep over the loved ones I had here who never knew Christ? And, and, And the answer to that is no. But it's appropriate to weep now and to plead and to pray. So, um, one more thing to think about here on verse 13, or page 13, excuse me. This, these notes are not the Bible. God has not told us everything that can be known, but he has told us what needs to be known. God has not told us everything that can be known. God has told us everything that needs to be known. So let's just look together at Deuteronomy 29, 29. I hope this is a familiar verse to you. I hope that you've memorized this. I hope that you can rattle this off. I hope that your heart owns this verse and that this verse owns your heart. It says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. Stop right there. The secret things belong to Yahweh. That is, there is knowledge that could be known that God keeps secret, and it's his. Should be enough, right? I I go to start speculating about theological things. I, I go to try to fill in the white spaces with my own thoughts or my own logic, or if that's true, plus that's true, then I must deduce this, therefore that's true. Dangerous territory. If it's off the map, it's not for me. Secret things belong to the Lord on purpose. It's God's purpose. Second half of the verse, 
But the things revealed, listen to this, belong to us. And they belong to our sons forever. Why? So that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, God's revelation is on purpose. Just like his choosing not to disclose certain things is on purpose, his disclosing, his revealing of himself, and his regulation of of his people at different times is on purpose. Not so that we could just have it on the bookshelf. Oh yeah, God revealed stuff, check. No, God revealed things so that I would know him. So that I would live in the way that he expects me to live. Uh, Again, we, we talked about it this morning in Romans 12, but God is so kind to give direction to his people. If if you've ever had the temptation to think, oh man, God's rules are so restrictive, constricting, you just misunderstand. The the Bible calls his law the law of liberty. And what a kindness of God to to give his people direction so they're not just wandering around in ways that are self-destructive and harmful to others. So first of all, God has not told us everything that can be known, but only what needs to be known. Uh, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Uh, Job reflects a similar sentiment in Job 38. Job 38, beginning in verse 1. And by the way, a, a, a lot of people in the first 37 chapters of this book said a lot of things they didn't know about. They tried to fill in white spaces. Uh, They got rebuked. Finally, God speaks. Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And I placed boundaries on it and set a, set a bolt and doors? And I said, thus far you shall come but no farther and here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? And on and on it goes. These rhetorical questions posed by God to the creature who thought he knew the secret things. Turn to Job 42. Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. That is a helpful refrain when you start getting into the philosophical world of theodicy. Why is there evil in the world? Since evil exists, therefore, now I'm going to predicate things about God that aren't true because I can't make things that the Bible says are true about God fit with my interpretation of my present experiences. 
Friends, that is the problem of the creature thinking he knows more than the creator when the creator has seen fit not to disclose certain things. There's a danger in that. By the way, the, the best treatment I've seen on this topic is Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. Uh, I would commend it to you. Um, and, and I think what Jonathan Edwards does in, in that work is pull from Scripture what do we know about God? And what is God revealing about himself in a world that has sin? And what we discover about God is what God describes himself as a fountain, a never-ending fountain that gives and gives and gives to all who are thirsty in an inexhaustible way. He, in fact, God, is the fountain which creates and quenches unlimited thirst. He's the one that produces in us a desire to know him, and he's infinite. And he has the infinite capacity to satisfy that desire, but it is a desire that produces a desire for more that is fulfilled by the infinite one who can satisfy the desire for more ad infinitum. In other words, it's just the reason that heaven's not going to be boring. To thirst after God, to be satisfied by God, and to be caused to be more thirsty for more of God and be satisfied by Him forever and ever and ever. That's what we have to look forward to. And Jonathan Edwards brings out this characteristic of God and says there are things in the attributes of God that could only be known if there was a universe in which those things were to be displayed. So, for instance, there are things that have always been true about God before there was ever a universe, and they were known in inter-Trinitarian fellowship, right? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit know each other, love each other. The things that are true about God now have always been true about God, and they've been known, they've been loved, they've been appreciated within the triangulation of inter-Trinitarian fellowship. That's always been true forever into eternity past. I guess if you're Hebrew, eternity past. But for those things to be known by someone outside of the inner Trinitarian fellowship of the Godhead, then there had to be a universe. And not only did there have to be a universe where these things could be displayed, but there had to be sentient beings, beings that could see it, be aware of it, feel it, taste it, know it, hear it somehow, that could take in that knowledge that God exists and He's wonderful. And then there had to be sentient, be sentient beings who could uh, uh, take in awareness of God's existence and love it. That is, God created beings with a capacity for love. You know, can you imagine what it would be like to be an earthworm with no taste buds and your food goes in the same place that its waste is removed? It's just not a pleasant existence where food is just a matter of survival. It's just, I have to, man, I got to eat. No, we get to eat. Taste buds is this marvelous capacity to actually enjoy what goes in. It's not just, well, I got to stop this body over the gas pump and put more in uh, fill up the tank so I can go on with my life. No, our lives revolve around the dinner table. 
But what a delight that is. This gets at the very nature of God to create a capacity for the enjoyment of him in creatures so that they can enjoy him, so that the very things that are true about God in inter-Trinitarian fellowship get to be known and enjoyed by creatures with the capacity to do it. And there are attributes of God that have always been true. Things like mercy towards those that are in a pitiable condition. That were always going to be true about God, but never expressed, never known, never loved never enjoyed, never delighted in until there was someone in a pitiable condition needing to feel that love from God. Love of God towards the undeserving was never going to be known until there were the undeserving. The patience of God, the long-suffering of God with people who are not in a line with his moral character yet, but he's working on patiently. That's known because things like sin and evil exist in the world. Now, that doesn't get us to the total answer of, God, why couldn't you just make a perfect world where we could all apprehend all of these things, not experientially, but just academically? Wouldn't that have been better? Apparently not. Because there is no way to improve on God's perfect plans. If you have a better idea in your mind about how God should have done it, you are saying that God's plan was not perfect. That's not in keeping with his character or his purposes or his plans. So what Jonathan Edwards does in that, in that sermon, in that um, essay, The End for Which God Created the World, which, is, by the way, is available in our library up here. You can read it. Um, it's also available free PDF on the Internet if you want to read it there. Um, what he develops for us is thinking about uh, what is the current state of our world, what is revealed about God in Scripture. And look, we could be satisfied with that. God, for his own purposes, has chosen to reveal things about himself that are seen and known against the backdrop of sin. Attributes that have always been true about him that would never have been known if there were not such a thing as a rescue or salvation or a propitiation. And I think we ought to be satisfied with that. We can, however, talk about how did sin enter the world. By the way, any questions before we move on to how did sin enter the world? Diana. That is very bold. <laughs> are you quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith or are you quoting John Piper? <laughs> um, or are you quoting Jonathan Edwards' resolution number one, which I'll state a similar thing and one of which I quoted in a sermon this morning. That's bold. That's good. Yeah, that's a really important question. So the Westminster Confession of Faith says, um, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay? I believe that accords with biblical truth. I, I affirm that statement. Um, I believe that man's great joy, infinite joy, is only found in God. And I also believe that the glory of God in bringing sinners to an ability to stand in God's presence and enjoy his presence rather than be incinerated by it is not at odds. 
God's glory is actually found, it's said in Scripture to be found in his redeeming of sinners, right? Philippians 2 is a great example. Why is Jesus exalted to the highest place so that every knee bows and every tongue confess? Because he humbled himself as a slave, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even the point of death on a cross. In other words, the cross work of Christ is exalted as that which is a, a, a fundamental reason for Jesus to be glorified above every name. In other words, Jesus bringing sinners to salvation is a reason for Jesus to be glorified. Our coming to salvation brings us out of misery into the joy of God, a joy which we are commanded to cultivate and enjoy, and a joy which we are promised in the eternal state. Um, and frankly, it's a joy that every temporal joy under the sun is an anticipation of. Um, now, what John Piper has done with that statement, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, is he has said the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Um, and, and I think his goal was to represent Jonathan Edwards' first resolution um, in that very transition. And John Piper has said, I have made it my entire life's work to make that statement known. And with a couple of exceptions, if you've read any John Piper book, you've read them all. They all say the same thing. <laughs> His goal in life is to uh, glorify God by having people enjoy God, to find their joy in God. Uh, he's labeled that what? Christian hedonism. Okay? I'm not sure that's a very helpful label. Hedonism is sin. Um, to lift up as a virtue something that has a label of sin is problematic if you want to be clear. I think that's a problem. And I'm going to go out on some limbs here because, Diana, you, you teed this up. Um, one of the dangers of John Piper's messaging in that way, and listen, we, are a, we have historically been a Piper reading book. There are Piper's on, Piper books on the shelf. There are some I would highly commend as the best work on a given topic. Okay, his uh, dissertation from Romans 9, 6 and following is a must-read. It's phenomenal. Um, and there are others. Uh, but but the, the temptation to run with this idea of joy as the goal, um, I believe has proved problematic for Christianity in our day. I believe that it, it creates an infatuation or even an idolatry of joy that goes against the very thing John Piper, Jonathan Edwards, and the Westminster Confession were aiming at, right? I think John Piper himself would be offended if you cho chose godless joy, uh, try to take some sort of joy in joy itself. I think he would be offended if you did that with his material, but I think that is the inevitable, unintended byproduct of the way he has written much of what he has written. Um, so I don't know that that turn of phrase is helpful. I certainly don't think Christian hedonism is a helpful way to describe worship. Um, that being said, I do agree with this fundamental premise that the glory of God and your infinite fun are not at odds. Uh, there, there, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to describe what heaven will be like, but it won't be boring and it will be enjoyable every step of the way and it glorifies God to put people who don't deserve to be there there. Is that, is that helpful? Does that answer your question? Yeah, 
Yes, and, and there, thank you. Um, what Diana said, my father is glorified when you obey his commandments. This is the whole context of how do you know you love me? How are you going to bring him glory? I bring him glory because I obey him. You love me. You're truly my disciples if you obey, those kinds of things. If you pit obedience and joy against each other, monumental failure. And, and I think it would go against what John Piper's been after in his life. He's, yeah. And it, it's a very real danger and a byproduct. And I think one of the, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of side lesson here. Um, I, there is a temptation to want to say biblical truth in a new way so that it captivates. You know, if you, if, well, yeah, I heard that verse a thousand times, but if you said it in a new kind of flashy, clever way, man, that's really going to stick. Okay, that is a low view of the word of God as if my clever turn of phrase is more powerful than the words that God himself wrote, right? And it, it, that's a subtle danger, but it's a danger that uh, just inside baseball a little bit, preachers feel, right? Um, if, if, the, if the pastor stands up and he says, man, I've been saying this the same way the whole time, I gotta find, out, find a new way to say this. That is a real temptation. I don't wanna see people nodding off on a Sunday morning, right? And, and, if, and if someone is given to the applause of men in the handling of God's word, and you fear that if I say it the same old ways, it will be boring. Listen, better to be boring than to be wrong. Better to be boring than to offend God. Better to be boring than to mess up what God has said. Very real danger and a desire to be clever. I don't want to cast aspersions on Piper's motivations, but the, the, the temptation to say something in a way that's catchy falls into that trap. And we just have to be aware of that. All right, there was uh, someone else had a question about the origin of sin. Okay. Any other thoughts? Dustin, you almost raised your hand. You clicked the pen. There was a thought behind there. I do have a question. I'm waiting until how does the world to ask it. Oh, great. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. It's too big a topic to jump in in the next eight minutes. So that's next week. There is one more question. You guys are pointing. Thank you, Michaela. Whoa. Okay. Go ahead, Michaela. Double teamed. Yeah, so Michaela's question is, uh, this morning in Romans 12, I, I, I described sin as not like a yin and yang in the universe and uh, some sort of cosmic battle. We don't know how it's going to turn out. But the Bible does describe the Christian life as a war and there are enemies. Here's the bottom line. It is a war. It's infinitely, totally, totally, and unchangeably asymmetrical. That means... It's not even, it's not fair, and the outcome is not indeterminate. God wins. It's not as if there, there are enemies of some sort of equal level of force that one pushing against the other. Listen, you must know that Satan is always on a short leash. Satan had to ask God permission to go talk to Job or mess with Job's life. Um, this is proven when it, just a mere angel takes Satan during the millennial kingdom, binds him with a chain for a thousand years so he can't get out to deceive the nations anymore. It's that easy. Have you read the battle accounts at the end when uh, Jesus wins? 
It's not like, oh man, I wonder what's going to happen. No, all these armies assemble both in the, in the battle before the millennial kingdom and the last upsurge at the end of the millennial kingdom. In both battles, armies of the world surge against Christ and against his people. Uh, fueled by Satan, driven by Satan's henchmen, and these armies show up, and what happens? A sword comes out of Jesus' mouth, and it's over. It's like the least climactic battle scene in the history of battle scenes. It would not make a good movie. The army's there, and then it's just done, and then it's lake of fire. Um, So by asymmetrical warfare, are we in a fight? Yes, we're in a fight. But we're not in a losing one. It, the, the, the Star Wars uh, idea, um, w- which really comes from uh, Buddhism, um, Taoism, and other Eastern religions that have more of a circular rather than a linear historical nature, um, they have this idea that uh, the dark side and the light side, they're both good in a way because they balance each other out and you really need balance. No, you don't need balance between dark and light. You need the light. <laughs> and, and in the end, the truth wins, God wins, and, and he's not losing now but he is executing every single thing that's happening in human history according to his purposes. And for reasons that aren't disclosed to us, those purposes include sin and the presence of evil. Does that make sense, Michaela? Are you talking about personally, like in me, flesh and spirit? Okay, yeah, yeah, no, in me, um, and, and this is something we'll talk, in, uh, talk about in a future equipping hour. This is really, really critical. This is something we, we deal with if, you, if you've uh, been through the blue chart, either in Build or in Wellspring. Uh, the necessity of being a shepherd over your own heart as a Christian is because you are regenerate, no longer a slave of sin, but still with the presence of residual depravity in the heart. There's a war on inside you, absolutely. Um, and it's asymmetrical in, in a sense that the outcome is secure. You, if, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is a seal and a down payment on your eternal reality when there will be no more sin even present as a residual reality in your heart. And you've been forgiven of its penalties and you've been removed from its power of tyranny. You're no longer sin slave, but you live with sin's presence. Um, now, there are days when the war feels asymmetrical the other way. Man, sin is winning in my life. feels that way. Um, and so the Bible gives us lots of armaments, um, weaponry, strategies against residual sin in the heart. You've got to fight that fight. You can't sit back and say, hey, Jesus wins, so I don't have to fight sin. Actually, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, Romans 8, leads us to put to death the deeds of the body. So flesh means a bunch of different things in the Bible, but when flesh is referring to residual depravity in the believer, it's a fight. Skipped you, Dustin, sorry. Let's ponder that one for eternity. I, I don't know. Uh, so the question is, um, God hates sin. Jesus is God. Jesus came down and lived amongst us. 
It's a significant scene when Jesus goes to be baptized in the water by John the Baptist. And John's right. Uh, I have need to be baptized by you. What are you doing here? You need to do this. We need to fulfill some things here. Um, Jesus is entering water dirtied by sinners to identify with sinners. It's crazy. Why would he identify with us? Why would he take on human flesh when since the Garden of Eden, human flesh has only been tainted? He comes in untainted, shows us what perfect humanity looks like. By the way, he is the image of God in man. We're being conformed to that image. That would be that. I can't do it. That would be the danger of French pressed coffee. (laughs) Grounds at the bottom of the cup. We're done. You're dismissed.